You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Jeff Vandermeer is the author of Dead Astronauts Born, the Southern Reach Trilogy, and the Ambergris novels. His latest book is Hummingbird Salamander. Thank you for joining me, Jeff. Oh, thanks so much for having me on. Jeff, this is such a wonderful book, and it encapsulates for me perfectly an idea that uh, I first saw in a Stanislaw Lem book that was published in 1971 mm. called A Perfect Vacuum. He has a chapter on called Pericalypsis, and he considered the pericalypse is the apocalypse that has already come to pass but went unnoticed in the general mm. haste. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> that's a great way of putting it. <laughs> and and I, I, I think that as in this age, we're always looking at apocalypses as, I mean, I'm used to from my upbringing of, you know, Dr. Strangelove, um, Damnation Alley, <laughs> uh, you name it. The apocalypse is that there's, it's a big exclamation mark. Mm. And uh, unfortunately, uh, reality is beginning to tell us that it's not going to be a exclamation point, but, a, you know, a dot, dot, dot. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, um, you know, I mean, you'd think that something like the COVID-19 emergency would would make it clear. But but that's also the other thing about it is it's an apocalypse that seems indirect like you could definitely make a case for COVID-19 being a result of the climate crisis in some ways uh but it's not direct right mm -hmm. and then individual weather things that wipe out whole towns seem also like they're just these random occurrences so it's not really funny but it's darkly absurd I guess um exactly what you're talking about is that we could we could pass a point of no return and not notice it for a while, <laughs> you know, it's like, and we're still walking around, but, but really basically everything's done. You know, it's, it's not funny, but it's, but it's, but it, but it is deeply absurd. Right. Right. Well, yeah, I, I think that, uh, you know, Dr. Strangelove here is our guide in, <laughs> you really have to, what left is to, to laugh, but also I think, more importantly, and more powerfully in this book, is it's incredibly poignant and, and almost nostalgic in a way, but it's nostalgic for a present that does not actually exist <laughs> because most of us are not really living in the real world. So talk about, you have such a, a your character who tells the story, Jane Smith, is really wonderful. How did you come up with this character? Well, it's funny because I think readers are divided on whether she's wonderful or not <laughs> so far <laughs> um, because she's not particularly likable, mm -hmm. uh, I guess. But I I, th I think I'm always more interested in kind of contradictory characters uh, who who are kind of consistently inconsistent, so to speak. And, and I think that Jane is interesting to me because 
I feel like she's someone who, in addition to everything else, may be trying to blow up her life. Like this this hummingbird she gets as, as a gift from this dead eco-activist might feel weirdly like a lifeline to her. But, um, but in terms of where I came up with the character, it's very difficult for me to remember now, except that I had this image in my mind of this tiny hummingbird in this large hand. And as I kind of pulled back, I kind of thought, oh, this is a very, this is a woman, first of all, who's holding, I don't know why I thought that. And then I thought, and she's a very strong woman. And then I thought, well, what does that mean? You know, strength can be anything. It could be that she's great at long distance running, you know? Um, and then I thought, no, she's, she's, she's actually someone who's like really physically imposing um, and has had to move through the world that way, being both, you know, invisible and extra noticed because she doesn't fit the norm. And I thought that would be really fascinating to explore. And then I just had to find certain anchors uh, that helped me. Like, for example, although I've just gone to seed during the pandemic with no gym, the only thing I can really do, <coughs> the only thing, the only thing I can really do consistently is like lift heavy things. Like when I started jogging, I could never keep that up and stuff like that. So I, I hike and I lift heavy things. So at least I know like the gym routines and things like that. I know what being in a gym is like, even though it'd be different for her. And then I, I also had uh, experience uh, knowing, you know, f women athletes in, in college and high school and, and, a, and a sense of their physicality. So those are the kinds of things I brought to the, the character um, that gave me an anchor. Uh, that, 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 that helped, uh, kind of get into it. But then there's also other things like, like Jane, uh, one of the early scenes I wrote is actually farther through in the novel where Jane's walking up a hill and there's someone following her. And I couldn't get that scene right for the longest time, but I thought it was kind of key. And then I realized she just, she just hauls off and hits him. And that's not just about her physicality. Cause right. She, he could have a gun or something and her physicality could mean nothing. So that told me something pivotal about Jane too, uh, that I thought was interesting. You know, for me, one of the things that hangs over this book is a kind of grayness. Uh, it, it's overcast here today, uh, where, where I live, and it's just that feeling of an overcast day where things mm. are kind of a little bit darker, but still clear. You can see for miles. Talk about creating that kind of... Uh, there's a weird feeling in there that's half nostalgia, half resignation, uh, and it seems uh, important to our time. Mm. Well, I mean, I think one thing I thought was interesting about working in kind of a th thriller noir territory generally was that that kind of comes with the territory already. You know what I mean? So mm -hmm. it already brings or is expected. So I think the atmosphere will will maybe even be more apparent to someone who isn't uh, a devourer of thrillers like I am. You know what I'm saying? It's like, because there's this kind of world weariness that comes in with noir and certain kinds of thrillers. But I think here, what I was trying to do is, um, uh, you know, there's a central ecological mystery, but, but the actual climate change crisis is still just kind of slowly, you know, creeping in. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted this oppressive sense in the background that would resonate with readers, even as it doesn't necessarily always impinge on Jane directly, uh, and have that slowly over the course of the novel. And it, it 
it, it probably isn't obvious, but it's supposed to be a, a feeling become creep in further and further, you know? So one, one little timeline that I charted in doing the novel was this idea of the sky turning green gray and then just kind of like amplifying that as it goes along. And just that one detail I thought was much more useful than any number of other things I could have done. Uh, mm -hmm. you know, the pandemics mentioned as well. Uh, but then there is also, like you said, the sense of nostalgia, like, you know, there's great opportunities. I thought in, she takes a flight to New York, you know, well, who cares if she's taking a flight, but that's a great opportunity to kind of catalog and show something that we think of as like an everyday event in a sense. I mean, for a lot of us or people are always traveling, but might be something that's not there in 20 years you know, or, mm -hmm. or might be something that we really want to discontinue doing. Uh, and so there is a nostalgia because of where she's writing from the point in time in which she's writing from, I think inst infuses the, the, the book, the rest of the book with kind of the ghosts of the, of, of her future knowledge uh, of the situation. Well, the point at which, in time at which you're writing the book infuses <laughs> the book with those same ghosts. Uh, and, and I think this book also really captures to me something that is very interesting that's happened and I think gone sort of under the the wire of most people, which is that we've always had this assumption that today will be pretty much like yesterday mm. and tomorrow will be pretty much like today. And that's the sense that we consider, quote, normal. Yet, I, I think in the last four years, unsurprisingly, uh, that sensibility has been pretty much obliterated with the knowledge that we've invented levers that are big enough so that all it takes is for one person to throw that lever and to find get mm -hmm. access to that lever. They can change everything for everyone. And we may or may not have immediate knowledge that that has come to pass. Well, I think that to some degree that's been true for a long time within mm -hmm. our government and others. <laughs> but uh, but there have been like, uh, the thing that, that I think horrifies me is the thing that seems to have stopped people from going full on uh, T words, so to speak, is in the past is just simply um, like cultural and societal constraints and a sense of decorum or a sense of <laughs> shame. <laughs> And so it's kind of uh, horrifying, but then also as an absurdist, deeply, deeply, uh, horrifically hilarious that that someone can come in and it doesn't matter what the rule of law is, it doesn't matter what our institutions are. Ultimately, they may have saved us, but but in the meantime, all this damage was done because so much depends on the fact that we all follow the same rules <laughs> and that these rules are invisible to some extent and and uh, constrained by bias, a uh, joint agreement that we're going to follow them, you know? So it's like, now, it's, uh, yeah, it's uh, hopefully eye-opening, but I, I'm a little bit concerned because I feel like we're already going to sleep again on this um, and, and not realizing, you know, uh, I know there's a lot of activists out there who are pushing hard to try to make sure that this isn't just like some false uh, window of, of potential normal normalcy, but it, but it is kind of, uh, kind of terrifying. You mentioned uh, the thrillers that you devour, and maybe you'd care to, to talk about that and, and how reading changes us, changes you, and, and how you decided, because 
this book is a beautiful thriller. It's super page-turning, but in an absolutely unfamiliar manner. It's an it's it's as if an alien decided to write a, a page turner who, who had <laughs> in a sense little knowledge but fantastic intuition as to how to do so. Mm. Well, I mean, I think there's a lot of different things involved there. I always like to combine genres and modes of writing. And I'm I'm most excited when I can do that in a way that feels invisibly innovative, if that makes any sense. Exactly. Um, yeah. No. Like it's a mimic of something. So the effects are probably more uh, disorienting because of what you're expecting in terms of the familiar. And I think that that's a really actually a kind of experimental thing to do. Uh, and it's harder to do experiments that are invisible. And so I've been drawn to them lately. Uh, so, you know, then, then the other thing is that I, I read so many or, you know, I, I glut myself on stuff. So like currently I'm not reading any mysteries or thrillers because I glutted myself for years and then I'll go back to them at some point. I still watch like every thriller mystery slash whatever you want to call it movie or TV series out there. And I think that all forms like a sedimentary layer where I can't like point to a particular influence, but I would say that, you know, something that says flatly stark as the factory series by this Derek Raymond, uh, UK writer, oh, but yeah. also has these beautiful moments in it, like beautifully described decay, <laughs> um, which is important because otherwise I think those books would be a monotone, but they're not because they have this inner life, uh, as expressed through these, these other moments that, that kind of cut through the, the, the other, the darkness. Um, so there's that. Then there's the fact that I th I was very confident that Jane would destabilize the thriller mode just from the point in time in which she's writing and the fact that the kind of mystery that's embedded with it, because there isn't usually a mystery of this sort in a thriller. So it's kind of a hybrid thriller mystery as well. Um, and that I must say, I studied quite carefully for years before I attempted this book. Uh, because there are actually books out there on on writing thrillers, on writing mysteries, and I took very seriously the idea of absorbing and internalizing all that so I could write a hybrid like this. So, you know, it's all of that stuff, the fact that Sylvina destabilizes it as well. Um, I think things like even having the Fur Town book in there and, and, and the quotes about, you know, kind of propaganda about animals wanting to be turned into fur, uh, which is actually a real book, <laughs> believe it or not. Um, I think all of that works to created a sense of unease and weirdness that that is different than what you would normally find in thriller for sure and and you know as always i'm going to pick up readers with this one i'm going to lose some readers with this one there's gonna be people who would be thrilled that i've subverted the thriller in this particular way and people who are not going to be so thrilled and um you know this is just what occurred to me as as being a really interesting way to talk about environmental and climate crisis issues and a lot of other things you know when you mentioned those factory books i i had to think of one of my more favorite UK series is I, I used to watch a million years ago called Taggart. That huh. it, uh, it was like a TV detective series, but it was just set in the bleakest, most terrifying parts of you know factory-ridden outskirts falling apart mm -hmm. of England. It was like a Joy Division song, yeah. come brought to life. <laughs> 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 yeah, no, I mean, and, and, and I, I am drawn to and sure, it can be like a false romanticism, but but there is something about the 
the the the dark neon sheen you know recent rainstorm streets at midnight that that can be really effectively done i mean i think you even see it with the the uh, films of that that guy who did drive and neon demon and that recent tv series that uh dutch uh director writer i can't remember his name Mm -hmm. although he maybe takes it to extremes but but you can see how even in a really stylized way how that can that can work so there's a little bit of that in there there's also a little bit of like um uh uh, throwback to like hard-boiled noir in like the last part of the the book where where Jane is is kind of you know out of her normal routine mm-hmm. has lost connections with people that she loves and and is is more or less a private detective without giving too much away <laughs> and uh, and so I thought that that would that would be so that that's the other thing is it, it is definitely doing these recombinations all along the way and it's almost like annihilation that it keeps becoming a different kind of book but within these these modes you know as you go along. One thing that I, I I've wanted to ask you was you referred about how you like to experiment and that's obvious because all of your books are very different and i i get the feeling that you must live at the center of a very strange universes where like there are completely different worlds impinging on your mind and Mm. getting into your brain and i'm wondering how you manage all that stuff like from ambergris to this world mm. to born i mean these and and the, the lamb's head books mm-hmm. this is a, these are very complicated places that you've created for yourself to play around in well i think there's two things i mean i i never really saw any division between low and high art when i was growing up my parents didn't either they they would i mean i had asterisks and obliques asterisks and tintin comics and i had uh comic books of like the Ramayana and stuff from India. And I had, they read to me William Blake and then they would just give me books that I was too young to understand. I think purposefully because it was, it was so that reading was like a mystery to me and, and it was all cross genre stuff and it was all mixed together. So from the very beginning, I didn't really see any of those distinctions. Uh, and then I just continued to read very widely. But then when I began writing short stories, uh, and that was kind of like the experimental lab for writing the novels in some ways, as I was like trying out so many different modes of writing, I realized that if I didn't really apply myself to the craft of writing in a lot of different ways, I would only be able to write a few different kinds of things. Uh, and so early on, I, I applied myself to learning as much craft in as many different areas as possible. And, you know, I think people sometimes want to divorce the art from the craft of writing, but but even the fact that I've had a lot of experience using sentence fragments with first-person narrators is something that's hugely key to the interiority of Jane here. The wiping out the I this, I that, uh, and getting you closer into the character, which also supports the way that a lot of uh, noir thrillers are written, uh, is is just a tiny little craft thing. But But being able to manipulate that properly, being able to manipulate hopefully properly a kind of limited second person where I implicate the reader from time to time in this novel by invoking you, uh, that's incredibly important to the effects of the more complex effects of the novel. Uh, so those are the kinds of building block things that I, I think about and that I still study today to be able to 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 engage in different ways on 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 these in these novels. I don't know if that really answers your question, but <laughs> well, um, I think that for me, when I read this novel, I, the sense of of mystery was really interesting it, mm-hmm. because uh, the character. Uh, 
as she begins the as she begins writing the novel, already knows what's what's happening and is telling her own story back to it. But I I like the way that you um, created uh, a mystery of that is I guess scientific, cultural, and mm-hmm. and based also just on you know a, a Maltese falcon sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So talk about how did. Do you discover this kind of stuff as you write, or do you know it when you sit down to write? It's kind of a combination of both. So on this novel, early on, <laughs> I uh, I thought that when Jane goes to the storage locker and finds the hummingbird, that the note that Sylvina, the dead eco uh, activist, leaves her would mention six other animals that she has to find in taxidermed fo- uh, uh, form to kind of solve the mystery that Sylvina set in front of her. And of course, you know, as soon as I sat down to write, I realized that this was ridiculous, that you could do that in either a really bad kind of scavenger hunt novel, or you could do that in a novel that was for comedic effect, but it just didn't work. Uh, so, so as soon as it resolved Hummingbird Salamander, that also, uh, resolve some thematic things because I, I, I narrowed it down to them because one, the hummingbird has this long migration over fragmented territory that's very dangerous for it. Uh, and it's just a marvel that in this current era that hummingbirds survive that journey. And then the salamander, of course, kind of feels everything through its skin, breathes through its skin, is a great indicator of the uh, environmental damage uh, because it just literally will die if, if there is too much of it. And so I chose those, and it stays in one place. So I like the contrast between the two of them, and one is considered beautiful and the other maybe not so beautiful. Uh, so so that's that's kind of what happens sometimes. It gets winnowed down or built up, and uh, I'll know the ending and all that, even if it changes by the time I get there or the implications of the ending change. And here, as, as it might be clear for, if, uh, from, from reading the book, uh, my main issue was... I wasn't quite sure where exactly I was going to stop. <laughs> um, and one thing that I wasn't, I didn't know until I got there is I really thought the novel was going to end earlier. And I think, you know what I'm talking about mm-hmm. that there's a moment where it looks like the mystery might be resolved, uh, but it isn't. Uh, and then there's a passage of time without giving too much away. Uh, there's a few passages of time in the novel, but, but in any event, I didn't know that was going to happen. Uh, and, and I feel like it's pretty key to the, the final effects uh, and also further further destabilizing the expectations of 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 what a what a novel should be as opposed to what life is. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, a novel is improved by a story and, and life is usually uh, degraded by a story. <laughs> <laughs> or yeah or too supported by a story yeah <laughs> a fake story yeah yeah well yeah. we've got, now one one thing you talked about was that this you just said that you know you could could have played the the stuffed animals for a, a comedic effect mm-hmm. and, and i think that Taxidermy, Rick, not stuffed animals. Um, Taxidermy. uh, (laughs) Right, well, now... (laughs) They're not children's toys. (laughs) They're more horrifying now. (laughs) Sorry, I'm just kidding. Well, no, I, 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 I long ago told my wife I intend to have myself stuffed after I die, and so I can see... Really, I do too. Yeah, I'm going to stand in the doorway of my house and greet people. I put a cassette player in me. Well, 
there we differ because I'm going to have myself taxidermed and left on the doorstep of my worst enemy. <laughs> uh, well, oh. I'm not going to inflict that on my family. <laughs> now, <laughs> so uh, as as <laughs> to comedic effect, I, I think that this book is, you know, it it's. In, you know, in a sense, it, it's grim. Uh, yeah. it, it, it's not filled with fluffy happiness. And, but I think it is actually, there's an undercurrent of humor that runs throughout this book, and I think throughout your work, that uh, is, you know, the first cousin of Dr. Strangelove. Mm. You know, Missy Strangelove. Yeah, no, I I agree. I mean, there's things about the machinations that she has to machinations that she has to go through that I find funny. There are things that she says that I think are funny. I even think it's funny that in the very first page, she says, "When someone hands you something, you just take it. You think about it later." And I find that both telling about her character and like what she's trying to convince the reader of, but also kind of funny because it's like. My first reaction would be no, actually, <laughs> and yet, and yet, I am, you know, not the author, but the character is trying to convince the 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 reader of something, and so there's little truisms that she puts in throughout the book that I feel are like just particular to her, <laughs> but she presents them like we all do, as if as if it is more generally applied, and then I even, quite frankly, and this is terrible, but I find. <laughs> This, there's a shootout that occurs in a used uh, car lot without giving too much away. And um, I have to say that I there's a there's an aspect of like everyone just suddenly pulling out weapons and shooting that I find grimly absurd about the American condition <laughs> because Jane doesn't expect that to happen. You know, it's like, well, it, yeah, it, 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 the fact that it sounds like something we might read about tomorrow or here right, on CNN right. is not, somewhat not is, funny. Is, but I'm just saying. It's well, just no, like, it's, you know. it is funny. It's both funny and terrifying. We we live in a age when horror and humor are becoming uh, increasingly uh, similar. Well, you have to laugh for 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 lack of crying on some of this stuff, like like nurses and triage do sometimes but the um the other thing about that is um just to speak to the influences that that scene is actually influenced by a scene in uh true grit by the coen brothers mm. where they did this great thing where they showed a shootout or an encounter like uh from someone watching on a hillside so you saw it all in like semi-darkness from really long shot and i thought that was a really interesting uh method so, so i tried out a, a couple things like that in terms of different action scenes in the in the book uh trying to translate that to, to fiction well such is the depth of my depravity that that i first thought of used cars it's an, well, what? Oh. An, old, <laughs> an old movie that uh I think still probably holds up at this point in time. I feel like I might have seen it, but I can't remember it to save my life. So uh, it has Jack Ward and I think maybe Kurt Russell in it as oh, okay. dueling used car salesman. I think it's an old Zemeckis movie. I'm not uh, mistaken. Okay. Okay, then I may have just seen Lockhart for it. Yeah. Um, one thing that is really interesting and incredibly compelling in this novel is the way you you incorporate that bit of science fiction uh, that is called the info dump, where when you talk about uh, 
the humming, you were talking about the birds migration. And that passage is really powerful because nobody can read that and not think, oh my God, this, the world has really pretty much ended at this point. And it's just reading, you know, the, about the, the hummingbird. So talk about your, the research that goes into your books, because there's obviously quite a bit of research and talk about like sublimating that research and absorbing it to the point so that when you talk, when it comes out of you naturally, you know, you're up to your eyes in it, doing all your with your wilding yeah. projects. Well, I mean, some of it is just like you said, just kind of in the background. It's just stuff I pick up over the years. And then if I still remember it, I feel like it's 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 interesting enough that a reader might want to hear it. But for the hummingbird and the salamander, I really wanted to be very scientifically accurate. And I thought, well, if I I can certainly research this and I can come up with this. But what if I have to react to somebody else creating it. So a biologist, Dr. Megan Brown, actually created the hummingbird and the salamander in all particulars. And then the most amazing thing is the way that she wrote about them was so compelling and such a great counterpoint to the style of the novel that I actually wound up, you know, anything that's in quotes is an excerpt of what she's Jane's found on the internet about the hummingbird is something Dr. Megan Brown wrote. Uh, and, and, and it, it, it works so much better. You know, one thing that I have a real problem with is like a, a novelist who has like a newspaper article excerpt in their novel. And it's clear that they've never been a journalist, that that would never be something you found in your local paper, for example. So so this avoided that problem, too, of me writing something scientific that didn't sound accurate. But then she put like hidden jokes and stuff in there. She put in hidden illusions. I didn't even real, realize until we started doing a couple interviews together. And then that's when I realized that she had really help this novel a lot. Uh, so there's that. And then there's the where I place the information. So the hummingbird is pretty key to Jane becoming really passionate about this and, and the details of this migration because it's so foreign to how she thinks about life. Um, but then the salamander, I withheld the information for a long time because I wanted a place that was emotionally resonant. So what I found interesting is hopefully where the salamander information is placed is pivotal because it happens after quite a few emotional jolts so then to read this thing about this this creature that absorbs damage through its skin, uh, I think has a symbolism and a resonance that it wouldn't otherwise, even though I didn't really, you know, add Jane's voice to that very much uh, in that section. So sometimes that's the way the research goes. You're lazy, you have someone else write it, and it works out nicely. <laughs> well, well, I think, too, it harkens back to your work as an experimental writer uh, and, you know, a, a bit of collage in a thriller novel. Yeah, not, no, not then, which you always find. And then just on the meta level, it was pretty hilarious to do actual like natural history one sheets with graphics of these imaginary creatures for the book tour and then post that on Twitter and then have uh, ornithologists arguing as to whether this scientific name was now contaminated and could never be used for a real hummingbird because she'd made it so accurate. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, but, but, but in a way where they were actually having fun, having that sense of play of talking about that. And they finally mm -hmm. came to a determination that no, they could still use it and ignore this. <laughs> 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 but I thought it was, it was quite, it was, it was just a nice other cool thing that came out of, out of doing it that way. You, um, are one of the things that this book makes clear is that you yourself are really embedded in a wilderness 
where you live right now, and it has a huge influence on you, I, I think. So talk about where you live, why you chose that place, and, and uh, give us a little overview of kind of what you're doing there now. Sure, um, and I'll, I'll try to keep this brief in the sense that I could talk about this for hours, but... <laughs> Um, so we were, we had to move eventually. We the house was, was, uh, that we were in was, was, was too small for all the work we were doing since we were then both working from home, you know, cause Anne quit her day job a few years ago and we had to find a bigger place for us both working at home. So we had a lot hard time finding a house because I needed a yard, a backyard that was pretty wild. Uh, and Anne needed to not live in a tent on 10 acres of swampland. So, um, <laughs> so she was concerned because I would, any house we looked at, I would just rush to the backyard. And if the backyard was crap, I'd be like, no, not this house, which didn't mean I didn't want to live in a, in a, in a house that had a roof or anything I did, but, but you know, so we had given up looking and then Anne showed me the listing for this place that had just come on the market. And in the listing, it looked like a tree house in the canopy with trees actually curved over top of it. And I just couldn't believe what I was looking at. I couldn't believe it was in Tallahassee. And so we came and got our realtor to, to look at it the day it was listed. We walked around for 30 minutes and we bought the house. Uh, we made an offer on it. And, and, and that was a that was a I didn't sleep for 48 hours because that's how long it took for them to accept the offer. And, and it was one of those things where I knew I was going to be heartbroken if we didn't get this house. And the reason is, OK, so we have these little ravines in Tallahassee that are little biospheres. So even though we're 10 minutes from the city center, we have this rich trough of, of, of woodland right behind the house that can't be developed on because it's too steep until you get to the bottom. So there are houses all around the kind of oval uh, of the of this ravine. But, you know, down in it, we have box turtles that have been there for 30 years and box turtles may have been in this ravine for thousands of years, you know, continuously. It's possible. Uh, so that was a pretty momentous thing to to realize, uh, even realizing that it was a great, great yard, but then also realizing that, my God, this is we're in an urban environment, basically. But we have this opportunity to to enrich this this wilderness, because the only other thing is that although there were a lot of native trees, there were a lot of invasive plants which have uh, no uh, value to wildlife for food or for hosting uh, caterpillars or anything else. So. So the first thing we did is pull out all the invasive plants and then try to restore native plants that would have been here before or let the native seed bank recover. So some places we just left bare and then things were miraculously that had been waiting for literally decades because they'd been suppressed uh, by these other other plants just miraculously came out of the ground and started growing. It is just stunning to me. And so, uh, you know, it just started out as let's let's do some some good for this yard and, and attract more birds and wildlife and, and sustain the wildlife that's here. And then as I learned more about native plants and that led me to subjects like indigenous land management before, uh, colonization, uh, you know, and, and all kinds of other subjects, so all this other stuff grew out of it. And I didn't know anything about plants before really, you know, I was focused on birds and mammals. So what it also did is it, it lit up the landscape anywhere I'm hiking in Florida. It's like, Suddenly, it's almost overwhelmingly ecstatic uh, because everything is alive. And I, I don't know why it took me 50 years to realize <laughs> that, that some stuff about plants, too, but it, it apparently did. <laughs> you know, the, this book, one of the things that I, I found most compelling about it 
was the prose. I mean, it's really beautifully written. You mentioned a, a bit about trimming out the the mm. the the eyes and and uh, bringing it closer to you. Uh, so it, it seems a, a quite a bit. Of, your prose is really varied. I mean. The difference between this and and a lamb's head book is is mm. is not non trivial. So talk, <laughs> it's completely different. <laughs> yeah. So 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 talk about uh, immersing yourself in this different language, and, and I think because the way you speak and the way you are writing at any given moment must change your mood and your perceptions of what's happening around you. What. If, to, to it, it, when you were writing a peculiar peril, mm-hmm. I mean, it's antic and absurd and and, and fun and, and super weird. So th- this, this is different. So do you find yourself affected by the prose you're using to create? Does that change oh, the way you see things around you? Definitely to some degree. I mean, the, the thing that was such a joy about peculiar peril is I finally got to put the humor front and center. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I, uh, you know, I did that in some of the Ambergris books too, and, and a rich style. Um, I do think it's one of the only books that, uh, has multiple non-lethal beheadings, uh, in the history of literature, <laughs> um, but <laughs> that are also fun. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but the, um, you know, I don't know. I mean, it, it's, 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 it, the immersion there was that we did these huge books of modern and classic fantasy. And so I, ha- I had all these antics kind of in my head from those stories. And so that put me in the mindset there. There's, there's a lot more influence of fiction on that book to some degree in history than, than maybe on this one, which is more about kind of lived in experience and even Jane's awakening to the environment. Although it's, you know, very rudimentary, you know, I did try to put in some of the sentiment that, that I had the last few years discovering things about plants, realizing just how bad herbicides are that I didn't realize things like that. But, um, but I also thought that I could use sentence fragments in a way that wasn't, uh, just like hard boiled. Right. So, so I think that, uh, I, I was able to find this book was really in a sense at all hard boiled. It was something akin yeah. to that, but it was not right. that. Right. And so, you know, I, I, hope you'll indulge me in that I want to read one paragraph from it that has sentence fragments in it, but I don't think is hardboiled or noir and just shows you, I think what the interiority is. So she's, she's going to travel to New York and, and, you know, we were talking about how this book comments on a lot of things that are alive, but don't seem like they're going to be for very long. So this is the paragraph of her traveling. I did and didn't enjoy air travel back then. The quiet, cool cocoon, the ice in the glass just so, the smooth camaraderie of seasoned travelers, broken only on occasion by the person to whom it was all too new. The freedom to be alone, to think alone, the spotlight from above that pearled the scented air, pointing at only the important things, the sense of being motionless once at altitude, outside of time, outside of history, even with weather delays in first class, class, you could almost forget the world was fucked. Um, and, and, and so the, the building blocks here, you know, if that was in peculiar peril <laughs> and it wouldn't be about air travel, but, but I wouldn't be using sentence fragments, but, but there is a layeredness to this, uh, that, that, that may not seem similar, but it, it is working on the same level as some of the paragraphs in peculiar peril, even if they're in a totally different style. 
And uh, I think what I, I like doing is I liked finding a kind of a baseline style in Hummingbird Salamander that could become more hard-boiled or become more like, not I don't know if the word's beautiful, but you know what I'm saying, more layered and complex than that. Uh, and And just in terms of the technique of it, you know, that's a paragraph that starts with a complete sentence and then has a couple of fragments that are longer and then short fragments and then ends with another complete sentence. So so there is a rhythm and a rule to to the way that's done. But as to whether it's a totally different head mindset, you know, I, I don't know. I, I was living in a world of 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 giant chickens with hedgehogs riding them for peculiar peril. And that's all from the folktales. So I think one thing that's become apparent is that generally our culture artistically does not know what to do with the current, with the way the current culture is at this moment, which is completely controlled by and influenced by the the plague we're all experiencing. Mm -hmm. and, and I think from what I've seen, the people, the and this is just based on stupid TV and and mm -hmm. movies, but it's either really ham fisted, half mm -hmm. done, half baked. Like okay, well it's kind of there, but it's not there. Or some people mm -hmm. would, some not. I think you did a beautiful job of writing about what's happening now, mm -hmm. as if it were happening right now, in mm -hmm. a way that is. You know, it, it makes sense, and I, I'd like you to talk about that because you yeah. ratchet it way back, and I think that is the absolutely the perfect decision, and it speaks powerfully to me about what's happening now, but it doesn't shout at me. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, one thing I knew, and, and this is because I first conceived of the novel in 2017 and then thought about it for a while, mm -hmm. but then did write it towards the end of, of the last administration and into the pandemic. One thing I knew originally uh, was I wasn't going to mention uh, Trump by name. And mm -hmm. that meant I wasn't going to mention other things. That other things were going to be distanced uh, in a way that I thought was useful so that the book could speak to current things but not seem just purely topical. Mm -hmm. But the other thing I always think about now, and I never thought about this as a young writer because as an arrogant young writer, it was like the author has complete control and the reader should just think this. Um, Probably not exactly, but, you know, I, I didn't really think about, you know, what is the reader going to bring into this? Where can I leave them space to bring their own story into it? And so here my thought was, look, I can I can be more specific about the pandemic, but it's so fresh in everyone's minds that they all have their own impression or story about the pandemic they're going to bring into this novel or any novel. And if I provide a more exact story that's kind of going to interfere and also be a little disrespectful in a sense, you know, because everyone has a story of loss in this pandemic or most people do, uh, or stress or whatever. So, so, so that's why I decided to keep it in the background to some degree and not have it be in the foreground. But then I also thought about other things like, you know, I was already keeping a certain distance from some things. And then also that, you know, pandemics have actually been in the backdrop uh, for a while now. It's just they haven't been as widespread, you know, they but they have been devastating to certain communities in certain countries and areas. So, you know, this isn't something new in that regard. Uh, so, so I thought that that would be interesting. And then, you know, I did pick and choose my points to be more topical, which is to say when she's at this 
conference on security in New York. I thought that was a perfect opportunity to both satirize and kind of project into a little bit into the near future about even things like what, you know, how wearing a mask might become stylized and almost a a fashion statement, which, you know, I feel like is the next thing that's coming, even if it's distasteful. (laughs) Uh, One thing, uh, I really loved your evocation of of her workplace and Mm. how she relates to it. And as a workplace, uh, the combination of, you know, high tech that allows us to be somewhat distant Yet, when you're working with people, you're right there, you're talking mm. to them, and they're part of your lives. Talk about creating that kind of uh, really, mm. I think, confusing to the people who have to eat, be there every single damn mm. day workplace. Well, I think uh, there's a few things working on that. Uh, first of all, as I've, I've worked uh, before I became a full-time writer, I, I worked in a lot of jobs that were like Lord of the Flies with middle management, which I probably said to you before, um, because it's also something that, that I, I worked on in authority or worked out or put into. <laughs> um, but, but here there was the added angle of, of Jane being kind of a fish out of water. And, uh, and I was also, you know, my wife Anne is nothing like Jane. But I've always been kind of uh, intrigued by the fact that Anne wanted to be a homicide detective in Miami. But then when she took a a computer or a statistics course, I can't remember which, that was connected to getting that degree, she switched to becoming a software programmer and manager, which meant that, you know, just like she if she'd been a homicide detective, she entered a world that was heavily male dominated here in North Florida. I think she was one of the first women programmers uh, for a long time. And she would go to conferences where she might be one of a handful of women. And as long as she was one of a handful of women, they would kind of pat her on the head and, and be okay with it, you know? And it's only when it became like 30% or 40% that suddenly there was the same as a threat. But, but anyway, so I was, you know, thinking about some of her experiences in, in terms of the way Jane has to negotiate that world uh, and then also thinking about, you know, things that I saw and heard when I was in day jobs. Uh, and, and, you know, it, it's funny. It, it's weird how there becomes to be a, a illogical and performative aspect of being in the workplace uh, that has nothing to do with the job, like you're kind of saying. Uh, and and I've seen that myself. And it, and it becomes almost a situation where in the wrong workplace, it becomes very damaging because people, I just think, get bored. Um, and even managers get bored and they feel like they have to fill their time with something and then something horrifying happens that <laughs> not everybody sees as horrifying right away. So, so I thought about all of that and then I thought about things about like Jane and her and her on the Hill beating that guy up. And, and I thought if she uses this other guy's computer to Google this stuff, it's in part because she's marking her territory because they've taken her authority away in other ways. So I thought that was interesting too. So, so there's a lot of things going on in that office environment that I think are key to, to, to the novel, even though they don't, they kind of like disappear later in the novel. Um, well, too, in the, in her family situation, both mm. her, her husband and, and, and their uh, daughter, but also in the families that she comes from, I think the way that you, mingle those two is just really powerful and it creates a certain sense of nostalgia and mixes it with a a real level of terror and i think that's an interesting mix to mix the sweetness and joy of a family with a with a really pretty terrifying aspect as well 
Yeah, no, I, I, um, I, I think it's important that you have the baseline and the baseline has, has consequences, which is to say, if, if, <laughs> if there were a really bad adaptation of this movie, um, her family would be affected much earlier and much more consequentially, and they would never come back into the picture, right? They would just be the catalyst for the, the actual, you know, for Jane's motivation to solve this mystery and like punish whoever's responsible for getting her into this. Right. Um, but I thought it'd be more interesting if they linger in inter in, in unusual ways and especially the husband, uh, without giving too much away. And I also thought that with regard to the family, it would be fascinating. And I know this, uh, you know, I didn't have a dysfunctional childhood like, like, like Jane did, but I did have a, a situation with parents who went through a very long, uh, acrimonious divorce, uh, where everyone was kind of mythologizing their own stories about what happened and how it happened and trying to make them be the person who was blameless. And so I thought it'd be really interesting if, uh, Jane has these memories of the farm. And then when she has to confront the past, um, there are certain aspects that maybe she hasn't remembered correctly or whatever, without again, getting into spoilers. Uh, but I thought that, uh, you know, that's just the way things work. People come out of the wreckage of certain situations and in part to save themselves, they have to tell stories like we always do. <laughs> All of us tell stories and try to make things coherent in our lives also that maybe aren't coherent, <laughs> you know, and shouldn't be coherent. <laughs> but that's what we tend to do. You mentioned uh the the bad movie of this book i would imagine that there, there's probably a good movie of this book in i hope in, so <laughs> in the works uh you you had a, a great success with annihilation i think and, and i'd like you to talk about you know your relationship to the movie your the in your relationship to the book and how that forms i mean when you're writing something now in the somewhere in your brain has got to be thinking this is a movie, this could be a movie, and mm. to that end, this book is very, quote, cinematic, I think, but in a positive way, in that yeah. the pictures, when I read a book, at least, it's like I'm directing a movie, and right. the book is the script, and it all right. happens in my brain. So right. this book is really particularly effective at creating the pictures for you. So... Um, talk about uh, do you, is this book a picture and, and talk about just the influence of movies both as input I mean something like uh, Blade Runner or The Stalker or uh, what was the uh, Solaris um, those are the movies that, that uh, this book somewhat reminds me of well I mean it's that's kind of hilarious you mentioned that because Sometimes I think Alex Garland made Annihilation because it was the easiest way for him to do a tribute to Tarkovsky, who was not an influence <laughs> on me at all. And that the last third is his way of doing a nice homage to J.G. Ballard in Crystal World. <laughs> but um, without, I'm not saying that with any bitterness. It's just, it's just hilarious to me how that all played out. But, but um, with regard to this book, you know, uh, Netflix actually acquired the option on it for a movie, uh, along with Michael Sugar from Anonymous Entertainment. But uh, based on like four pages of summary and 20 pages of the beginning of the novel. And I would not have actually even allowed it to go out for people to consider if I hadn't thought it was a cinematic novel, which is to say that, that I knew there were movie influences on it. So the idea that it might be turned into a movie was not going to affect how I wrote it or in any way be on my mind, right? Mm -hmm. Um, if it had been Peculiar Peril, I probably would have been, let's wait until I finish the thing. 
Uh, well, let's see if there's anything here anyone really wants to film. Do you want to film multiple happy decapitations? I don't know. Um, so uh, Yes, yes, so, I want to see happy decapitations on screen. That'll probably be the title of the movie. Uh, yeah, but, that uh, sounds like a good one. <laughs> They'll be like, we're going to go after the Terry Pratchett audience. Let's call it Happy Decapitations. Um, but uh, <laughs> the um, the uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, I think movies get a bad rap with regard to their influence on fiction because everyone points to there are too many jump cuts in fiction because of movies. But in actual fact, there's a lot of really sophisticated technique in movies and TV that I try to translate and I like being influenced by. And so... You know, I, I do think that there is kind of a feedback loop where the fact that that influences the book means that it can also then on the movie side, uh, you know, actually actively <laughs> use those same influences in a way if I'm like working with the people who are doing the movie. Uh, so so the only thing with the, regard to the movie is that the pandemic slowed everything down. So basically right now they're 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 auditioning, you know, writers and and, and possible directors. And there's not much I can say about it, except that they're in the active mode of 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 you know, trying to get this movie made. Uh, and I, I don't know much more than that. We're probably a little further along with, uh, at AMC with the Bourne series. Um, but yeah. Uh, do you want to talk about anything you have in the hopper? Yeah. Uh, because I, <laughs> my subconscious just loves to, um, procrastinate while I was supposed to be doing things in the build up to uh, hummingbird salamander i wrote a long novella called subject 680 uh that i'm very happy about that'll be part of the collection right now it looks like the collection from mcd fsg uh, which will be out in the next couple of years is going to probably be three novellas under the title the end uh, and uh, the reason is that I've, I've written now three novellas, including Subject 680, that's, that really seemed to me like they're the last story in a collection. And it was just driving me nuts because I, I, I'd love to see them all together. I'm like, how do I? And it's like, we're just going to call it The End. <laughs> so that's the working title. We'll see if my editor actually agrees with that. Uh, but then this is I'm really excited about. And I think you've read the story, Rick. Maybe maybe not. But, you know, I have a story, Secret Life. Oh, about yes. an office building and a vine. I love that story. And that reminded me quite a bit of this. That was the I closest. Can that. I can see that. Yes. Mm. Um, and, and, and so, uh, about two years ago, uh, I started communicating with Theo Ellsworth, this, this great self-taught artist who does comic books. And I was like, we should do a project together. And he said, yeah, you want to send me something? And so I sent him secret life. And about six months later, he sent me, a completely done comic book of secret life. <laughs> and I'm like, wow, this is amazing. You wrote a script and you storyboarded this. And he said, no, I just thought about it in my head. And then I did it in one take. <laughs> I could not believe it. I'm like, you're a freaking genius because I was expecting he would come back to me and I would have to write a script and do work. And being fundamentally lazy, as you can tell from the amount of books, uh, the few books I've had out the last few years, um, the, uh, the uh, the the idea of adding something else was was kind of excruciating. So the fact that he just did this and then we sold it to Drawn and Quarterly. And long story short, it's out in um, in uh, uh, September from Drawn and Quarterly. And and what's great about it is he's been so faithful to the wordage. Like a lot of the the words, the actual sentences from the book are in there. And yet he's also got these extended scenes that just add so much. And it's very dynamic and and kind of beautiful. So. I am definitely looking forward to that one. The new novel by Jeff Vandermeer is Hummingbird Salamander. Thank you for joining me, Jeff. Always a pleasure. Thank you so much, Rick. Thank you. <laughs> 
You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.